0: And we'll turn this afternoon to Leviticus chapter 19, we'll, be, we'll pick up verse 5 to verse 11, Leviticus 19 verses 5 through 11, and it goes, when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. I'm sorry, so we're reading from verse 4, I'm sorry about that. Leviticus 19, beginning from verse 4. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after and anything left over until the third day shall be burnt up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, it will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. We were looking last week at chapter 19 where we saw the central idea concerned how Israel ought to live as a holy people. We were looking at the question, what does it mean for Israel to live wholly to the Lord, and by extension, what does it mean for you and me to live wholly unto the Lord? And we saw back then that it involves, first of all, based on that chapter, it involves submission to authority, specifically the authority, parental authority, authority of one's parents, and then secondly, it concerned regard for God's ordinance. In particular, as was mentioned there, the ordinance of the Sabbath. And we pick up this day with the third instruction for holy living, as we find in this passage. And it concerns a prohibition against the formation of idols. God said to Israel through Moses, he says, Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. And we always have to bear in mind that idolatry involves far more than the making of and worshipping of images. The essence of idolatry is any displacement of God or relegation of God to a secondary position by way of focus on, preference for, or affection towards some object, some activity, some idea, Or some person. In other words, an idol can be anything. An idol does not have to be metal, as we often say. It can also be mental. And as such, idolatry dishonors God. Idolatry dishonors God. Whatever form it takes, it dishonors God. Why? Because it displaces God who should have first place in our lives. But not only does it dishonor God, Idolatry devalues and demeans those who are involved in it. It is the most demeaning endeavor when one turns to that which is not God and one serves and lives for that which is not God. And the psalmist establishes this when he states in Psalm one fifteen four through 8 speaking of the heathen, he says of them, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Here's what he says in verse 8. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. The principle Underlying is this, and we could say this for worship in general, that we become like what we worship. We become like what we behold. And that is what the psalmist is is saying here. And this parody of idols and idolatry is repeated in Psalm 135, 15 through 18. And as a degrading demeaning sin, idolatry leads to a path downwards, away from God, and hence to impurity from which one needs to be cleansed, Ezekiel 36 and verse 25. According to Hosea chapter 2 verse 19, Psalm 16 and verse 4, one's lips are defiled by invoking the names of idols. In fact, the psalmist says there in Psalm 16 verse 4, he pledges that he would not take upon his lips the name of another god. That was why we see it here, actually Psalm 16, verse 4, after citing the sorrowful fate of idolaters, he says just that. He says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. And so for Israel to be holy meant strict abstention. It meant strict abstention from the making and worshiping of idols of all kinds. It meant giving full devotion and allegiance to the Lord Dear God. You'll notice what God said at the very end of that instruction in which He prohibits idolatry. He says, I am the Lord your God. That is what we always need to remember. God must have central place in our lives. He must have first place in our lives. He must be priority in our lives above friends, above families, above things, above possessions. He must come first in our lives. Anything less than that means we are living unholy lives we come then to the fourth instruction related to israel's call to holy living and that concerns the matter of acceptable worship acceptable worship we cannot be holy if our worship is not to the glory and honor of god God gave clear instruction to Israel here in verses 5 through 8. He says this When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it on the day or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day. "...shall be burnt up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, it will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people." Now, you and I do not offer sacrifices today, animal sacrifices at least. We do offer sacrifices today, but sacrifices of another kind. We offer, for example, the sacrifices of thanksgiving. We offer the sacrifice of praise. We offer the sacrifice of good works, and so on and so forth. And all of those are scripturally based. But notice here, from verses 5 and 7, we see that which is to be the motive behind our worship. What is to be the motive behind our worship. What was the motive behind Israel's worship? What was to be their motive? Should be our motive as well. And that is our worship should be characterized by at least three things. Three motives as we find in suggested here. Our worship, first and foremost, should be guided by this motive. That we might be accepted by God. You'll notice twice in verse 5 that you may be accepted you shall offer it that you may be accepted. And then God talks later on about offering that will not be accepted and so on. But our worship, the reason why we worship, the motive from which we are to worship is so that we might be accepted by God. Not that we might feel good. Our worship should not be for what we can get out of it. Some people say, well, I don't get anything out of the worship. Well, really, worship is all about what we put into honoring and glorifying God. Our worship should be characterized by the glory of God, or worship should be characterized by this motive that we might be accepted by God. And I would add to that thirdly, going elsewhere in scripture, our worship should be of such from this motive that we ourselves be accepted by God. And Scripture illustrates the truth that both the worshiper and his act of worship to God are inseparable. Genesis chapter 4, verses 5 and 7 shows us that we cannot separate the worshiper from his acts of worship, his tokens of worship. We read there in Genesis 4, 4, 5, and 7, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Notice there, God reckons both the worshiper and what he offers as one. So Cain was angry, and his face fell, and the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? So here it is, here it was. God rejected, God did not accept Cain, and he did not accept Cain's sacrifice. Malachi 1, verses 9 and 10. Here's another illustration of the principle that God regards, as God has an eye both for the worshiper and what he offers. Malachi chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. With such a gift from your hand, Malachi is challenging the people of his day who are offering him in pure worship. He says, "Will such a gift from your, with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? And then he has God expressing this gospel God, he has saying, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. And here's what God says. He says, I have no pleasure in you and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God will not accept, he says, neither you nor your offering. And then, Matthew chapter 5, 23 24, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What is God saying there? God is saying if you come to the altar and you're not right with your brother, you're not right with your sister, the worship is tainted and until the relationship has been healed, then I will accept the worship. We cannot separate the worshiper from his gift. Note again from our text that worship, was to be informed precisely by what God prescribed, by what God stipulates, verses 5 through 7. God made it clear there how he wanted those sacrifices. And it says in verse 8 that those sacrifices that did not meet the criteria he set forth in those verses, verses 5 through 8, he says that worship constituted, look at verse 8, it constituted iniquity and profanity. So there can be no holiness, no true holiness, where there's not the pure, proper, prescribed worship of God. And then the fifth instruction related to Israel's call to holy living, and this also has an application for you and me, concerned the issue of compassionate regard for the poor. Compassionate regard for the poor, verses 9 and 10. God gave this instruction. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not Reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord. One clear truth that emerges from this instruction God gave Israel is that the word of God recognizes and endorses the notion of private property and yet while the bible endorses the principle of private property the bible likewise affirms god's lordship over our possessions the land belonged to the landowner owner the owner of the vineyard and yet god is giving instruction as to how the owner was to deal with his land and its produce private property but yet remember what God would say to Israel I am the Lord your God in other words I set the agenda for how you ought to live in all areas of life in verses 9 through 10 we see that God dictates what we may and even what we must do with the things we possess he dictates what we do with our possessions our possessions, yes, are not entirely our own. They are to be dispensed with under God's directive. And as, as you see at the end of verse 10, he predicates this claim, this dictate, on the fact that he is the Lord, their God. And why so? Because at the end of the day, all that you and I have, ourselves as well as our possessions, belong to whom? To God. To God and we are but stewards stewards of God's grace with respect to the things we have david in fact rightly recognized and prayed to the lord in first chronicles 29 Verses 11 through 14, David went before God and David recognized that the things he had really were not his own. He says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Here's what he says, for all that there is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great, to give strength to all. Here's what he he continues to say. And now we thank you, O our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you private property, yet God is the Lord of all that we possess, and he dictates how we dispense with our own goods. God dictates what we do with the resources we possess, and one of the things he dictates with respect to the material resources we possess is that we give consideration to the poor. Here in Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, he established the law that when harvesting one's vineyard, One was not to do so thoroughly. One was not to gather the grapes that had already fallen, but to leave them for the poor and the sojourner. In this way, the poor, the sojourner, would be fed. What story comes to mind? What account comes to mind? The story of Ruth. Remember, Ruth was from Moab. She was a foreigner, came, and had no employment. So what did she do? She went into the field of Boaz. She gleaned The leftovers, and she took home for her mother. And this act of generosity to the poor was rooted, Israel was to understand, was rooted in God's generosity to the nation in delivering them from a life of oppression back in the land of Egypt. Note verse 22, God predicates this command to Israel on this, verse 22. He says, you shall remember that you were a slave In the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do this. God was saying to his people, in effect, give as it was given to you. Be compassionate, even as I was compassionate to you. And gathering these leftover grapes for themselves and not having to beg what God was actually doing, God was actually protecting the dignity of the poor. God saw to it that their dignity must be preserved, and that they might not succumb to stealing. This flows naturally to the sixth instruction we find here in our text, verse 11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, perfectly blended. You see, one of the things, and it's a fault in our society that people who are generally regarded as poor Uh, sometimes have poor ethics, especially when it comes to work, especially when it comes to matters of generosity. And uh, there can be, as the word is banded about sometimes, and justly so, this attitude of entitlement. I'll never forget listening to the news where when there was some break-in and uh, these people were going in a smashing Jeweler store, taking whatever their action, you remember, was defended on this grounds, well, because of their situation, we have to see with them. I don't remember exactly what was said, but you remember what was said. It was kind of really, you know, just treating lightly the arrant thievery that took place. And God, notice what he does in our text, God, as it were, is saying, listen, not because one is poor means that one has to resort to stealing. God makes provision for the poor whereby they do not have to steal, and he made this provision for them, and we're talking about people who could not help themselves, people who were in a very bad way economically. God looked out for them. The Bible tells us how we should relate to um, this matter of dispensing of our material goods, The Bible says, for example, in 2 Thessalonians or 1 Thessalonians, somewhere there, it says if a man does not work, neither should he eat. We are not obliged to help those who will not work, who will have no regard for furthering themselves, who will just laze around and look for handouts. But back to this instruction and we're drawn to a close this afternoon. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. Behind these injunctions, of course, are the Eighth and Ninth Commandments. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, Exodus 20, 15, and 16. And in this prohibition against stealing, we see once again God's recognition of the principle of private property. But not only that, we also see He's protecting the right of ownership by outlawing any attempt at encroaching on and appropriating for oneself that which belongs to another. You see, God is a God of justice. And justice is not one way. Justice works both ways. Justice looks out for the poor, but justice also looks out for the wealthy. That is true biblical justice. The command against stealing is reiterated in, Philippi- in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see, if we want true social justice, <laughs> we're going to find it in Scripture. And um, as is is perhaps rightly observed, the Bible never really qualifies justice. Justice is justice, right? Justice is justice. Justice is defined by God. And God works right across the spectrum in in, in seeking fairness for everyone. He closes by saying, you shall not deal falsely. Actually, it's not the end, but I'll just end right there. (laughs) You shall not deal falsely, closely related to the idea of stealing. And an example of what falsely can be found in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 2, where it involves deceiving one's neighbor in a matter of deposit or security. Somebody gives you something to put up, some asset to put up, some money to put up, some goods to put up, and here's a person reporting. They can't find it. They don't know what has happened to it, but really what they did was appropriated to themselves. And the Bible calls that plain what? Thievery. Dealing falsely. Deceiving by way of robbery, by way of oppressing one's neighbor. And the principle, the true thought of the word of God is that in our business dealings, we are to demonstrate holiness, the holiness of God in our honest dealings. True honest deep business dealings. We are to be honest in trade, we are to be honest. In our interpersonal relationships. Of significance here in Leviticus 6, verse 2, is that such acts are, God describes as sins, a breach of faith against the Lord. And it's very important we note that God, the text says, is not only sin, but it is a breach of faith against the Lord. What is the lesson there for us? Sin against one's neighbors. Sins against one's neighbors are ultimately sins against God. Ephesians 4, 15 and 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. I think I'll stop here for this afternoon, but tremendous principles, um, how practical we see a book like Leviticus, which we can overlook very easily and say, you know, it's just dry You know, we can easily dispense with it from way back. We see God concerned about the holiness of his people. They were to be holy in all their conduct. They were to be holy in the sanctuary. They, They were to be holy in the home. They were to be holy in their business dealings. They were to be holy in every aspect of their lives. And that's what God has called you and me to do, to be holy in all our manner of life. May God bless these truths to our hearts. For his name's sake.